The Lord be with you. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this opportunity to be together. And we ask your blessing on this time as we talk about really, really important things, glorious things. Uh, the fact that you created sex and you created marriage. And there's so, so much potential for shame. There's so much potential to, for, for misunderstanding. Uh, Lord, we pray that we would understand what your word teaches and that you, in fact, would cover our shame and that you would inspire us to live according to the ways you've made, not because you're a God who delights in our restriction, but because you delight in giving good gifts. So bless us now as we talk about uh, this topic. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I was telling folks we are not even really going to go into this, and thankfully so. So what I'm going to do is I've amended... Uh, I think the last class I was just trying to do Q and A. I think it will much it will serve us much better if we split apart these two, make two sessions out of one on sex, and really because Keller's looking at what does the Bible actually teach on sexual ethic? Why is that so offensive today? And how can we live into it as a church? That is a really important thing. That's so different than what he talks about in Allender talks about in the intimate mystery where he really goes into detail about married couples and how to address past shame and guilt and to actually have a fruitful and joyous sexual life. And of course, there's going to be overlap between the two, but I found them so different and so worthy of addressing that we're just going to split them into a little bit, uh, into two sessions. So we're skipping ahead in Keller's book, Sex and Marriage is Chapter 8. And I'm going to outline some of this, and I, and I would like to try and get through, just to, so we can talk about it, because it's worthy of talking about it. But So he says, what are some faulty views first of sex in our society today? One is that sex is merely an appetite, just like eating or drinking or sleep. It's just an appetite that you have to fulfill. Another one is that sex is sort of a necessary evil. This comes out of the... I guess old notion that like the spirit or the mind is um, is higher than like the low body drives I guess and so sex therefore is kind of a necessary evil for procreation and it's and it's dirty because of that. Thirdly, sex uh, false understanding is sex is a critical form of self-expression and identity. He briefly addresses each of these and I, and I think it's important to look at that. So looking first at sex being just an appetite, I think we see this in the world around us that, uh, you know, there's nothing good or bad. It's just, it's just the way it is. And so you ought to get into just healthy appetites, right? This is, this is one of the uh, more physiological or biological approaches to, to sex uh, that there's that, and, and the church is often pitted as an evil against this. Why would you ever try to restrict somebody from sleeping or eating? That's a bad thing. And so if it's just an appetite, you need to uh, indulge it to a certain extent. And um, the problem with that is that although it is an appetite to an extent, sex is so much more than just physicality. It involves the heart. And therefore, it is affected by sin. And sin, obviously, has affected all of our you know, mind, body, soul, and will, and therefore, what he's, Keller says that our appetites sexually are out of line 
with the way that they were actually created. He gives this amazing illustration, quoting C.S. Lewis, as he often does, how can we tell that our appetites are out of line today? Well, he, he's, it's Lewis in like the 40s or 50s, and it's in Mere Christianity, he says, um, you know, uh, gentlemen's clubs are, uh, can draw a lot of crowds to them by things like a striptease, is what Lewis says. can't believe Lewis writes that, but he actually wrote it. He said, now imagine if you were on another world and you saw uh, another planet, basically, and you saw a, a ton of crowds in a similar sort of environment, and uh, what's on stage under the lights is this magnificent platter that's covered, and uh, the lights are kind of dimmed, and it's a long, slow process of slowly lifting the lid off this platter. And right before the lights go out, everybody gets a glimpse that it's just a, a mutton chop or a slice of bacon. Would you not think that their appetite for food was out of line? <laughs> that they were, in fact, starving? And it's like, we can actually see in our day, just like even more so today than Lewis's day, that our appetites are out of line precisely in the way that we approach sexuality. Um, and I think that's a great little illustration. Another one is that, uh, you know, another objection, I guess, that people often think of when it comes to sex is that it's this necessary evil that is just for procreation. And it needs to be said that Christianity is the most radically body-positive religion that there is. So if you take Genesis we have both Genesis 1 and 2 and Genesis 3, that God created all things good, right? And so unlike a lot of Eastern religions that say you need to escape desire, you need to escape the physical world because all of that is, is bad. So to reach a state of nirvana, you have to empty yourself from all of these physical kind of things, desires and whatnot. Christianity says, no, all of that's actually really, really good. Our bodies, our sexuality, incredibly good. And yes, Genesis 3 happened, and sin has come into the world, and it's affected everything. So what that means is that there's a created good that's been perverted. That there's a, um, in its very essence, something good is there, but it's now been misused and sent to a different end. And so uh, we're going to look at several, do you have a Bible around in there? Um, Proverbs and Song of Songs are some great places to go for looking at the positive good of sexuality in the scriptures. So, actually, just turn to the end of Song of Songs. If, why don't we do that? That's after Ecclesiastes, if you have not read it. Um, what page was it? Right. End of chapter 4, starting in verse 16. Is it really 666? <laughs> Ominous. Wow, that's weird. Um, well, mine is 762, so we're going to go with that, I think. Okay. Anything but that. Yeah. End of chapter 4. I'll, I'll read from the ESV. But before I read from Song of Songs, uh, Proverbs 5, verse 19 says, uh, talking about just the goodness of sexuality, uh, it says that uh, the, who is it, the, the preacher Solomon tells his sons, 
to let the breasts of, his, of their wives fill you at all times with delight and to be intoxicated always in her love. And if you think that is raunchy, wait till you get to Song of Songs. Um, I'm going to start in verse 16. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. Verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. And I drank my wine with my milk. And then skipping down to verse 10 of chapter 5. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold, set with jewels. His body is polished ivory, bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved. This is my friend. <clears throat> now, you read that. Does anybody have a radically different translation there? No, it's not different. Okay. So... When you realize what Song of Songs is, it's all about this courtship leading to the point, what I just read, was a, uh, a couple that is making their way to the, uh, the marriage bed after the wedding. And so they're standing naked before one another in many ways, saying they're about to consummate their marriage. And it's, you, you can read that and pro- maybe read it in a church service, I don't know. But... Um, Listen to what this Tremper Longman, who wrote, co-wrote this book. He's an Old Testament scholar, and Lewis, or uh, not Lewis, Keller quotes him here. He says this about it, and I'll just read this quote: "The role of the woman throughout the Song of Solomon is truly astounding, especially in light of its ancient origins. It is the woman, not the man, who is the dominant voice throughout the poems that make up the song. She is the one who seeks, pursues, and initiates." In Song, uh, Song of Solomon chapter 5, what we just read, she boldly exclaims her physical attraction. His abdomen is like a polished ivory tusk decorated with sapphires, verse 14. Most English translations hesitate in this verse. The Hebrew is quite erotic, and most translators cannot bring themselves to bring out the obvious meaning. This is a prelude to their lovemaking. There is no shy, shamed, mechanical movement under the sheets. Rather, the two stand before each other, aroused, feeling no shame, but only joy in each other's sexuality. So you can let your mind go to what the natural poetic imagery of what's happening there when she's talking about a polished ivory tusk decorated with sapphires. The translators themselves find themselves unable to actually name what is so clear in the Hebrew. And all of this goes back to the fact that the Bible, I love this, he says, the Bible is a very uncomfortable book for the prudish. So it is so far from being a negative thing according to Scripture, but so often people think uh, that Christianity is 
you know, sex is terrible, so save it for the one that you love. You know, that's kind of the way that people think about the church and their teaching. Nobody's asked me to do that one yet. I would love to preach on that, maybe, um, but nobody's, nobody's asked me to do that one. Uh, third thing that's important, I think this is especially true today, sex is so involved in our identity and self-expression. We tend to think sex is just about me and some other mutually consenting adult. It's what, what happens in the privacy of my own bedroom is nobody else's business. I mean... We, this is the air that we breathe, is it not? Like, we've probably heard this on some level. Interestingly enough, the Christian faith and the Bible teach something very different from that. Sex is primarily a way to know God and build community. And if you use it for those things, Keller says, rather than your own personal satisfaction, it will lead to greater fulfillment than you can imagine. So... That is probably not the way we tend to approach sex, right? And this is one of the most astounding things in these both books on this chapter is sex is about God and thinking about it. We tend to, we can react a number of ways to that, but usually it's just not the first thing that comes to our mind. And especially this notion that sex is meant for the community, that is certainly not popular in our day. So I found in Keller, he cites Wendell Berry. Have you heard of Wendell Berry? Maybe? Okay. Uh, he's a phenomenal writer on uh, a lot of different topics, but in the footnote at the end, this was amazing what he talks about. He wrote an article kind of on this, and I'll quote a lot of it here. It's footnote number three from the chapter on sex and marriage. It says, What I do with another consenting adult in the privacy of my own bedroom is no one else's business. That's the claim that, I mean, do we not hear that all the time today? This, he says, Wendell Berry says, this claim on the surface appears to be very broad-minded, but is actually very dogmatic. That is, it's based on a set of philosophical assumptions that are not neutral at all, but in fact semi-religious and have major political implications. So think about this. He talks about three social costs to actually living according to uh, this, the popular sexual ethic today. They're, having sex outside of marriage can lead to three social costs. First, and the most obvious, is that, okay, there's the spread of disease and children growing up without parents. That's a, that's a major, obvious social cost. A less obvious second cost is that uh, people are finding now that there's psychological and developmental problems that children who don't have a stable family environment for the, their childhood that they incur. So we don't often think about the psychological effects that children will have not in a stable two-parent husband and wife home. But he says the most subtle cost that most people don't realize by this view of what I do with my own body and with another consenting adult and the privacy of my own is nobody else's business. He says the most subtle of all cost to that view is the sociological fact that what you do in the private shapes actually your own character. Character is, after all, what you do in secret. That is what our character is. And so what you do in private shapes your character, and that affects how you relate to other people in society. When people use sex for individual recreation and fulfillment, it weakens the entire body politics ability to live for other people. You learn to commodify people and think of them as a means to satisfy your own 
passing pleasure. It turns out that sex is not just your business, it's everybody's business. It's a radical thing that most people don't realize. Actually, by living according to this belief that I can just do what I want in the privacy of my own room, what it does is it teaches you by serving your own selfish desires, is it doesn't actually make you into the kind of person that societies need to survive. We need to create self-sacrificing individuals who die to their own desires for that of the communities. That's what creates stable, strong societies. And our sexual ethic of what I do with my own body in my own bedroom with another consenting adult, it undercuts that completely. So it's, a, it's an astonishing claim, but it goes right at what the world says, that what I do is my own business. No, it's actually, it's everybody's business if we care about creating a good, wholesome, thriving society. So I thought that was really helpful to kind of go over. Then he goes into actually what sex actually is. And in 1 Corinthians uh, 6, which will be a good place to go. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 because we'll be there um, uh, for a few different occasions. 1 Corinthians six seventeen. Let's go to... Uh, well, I'm starting... Let's start in verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. He's quoting that passage we've looked at so much in the Allender book, Genesis 2, 24. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. What's he saying? Well, he's saying that sex, being united to a prostitute, isn't just something that happens physically in a person. It's a holistic unification. Sex is meant to unify people uh, at every single level of their personhood. And so he says, in a sense, that sex is intended to be a... He calls it... It's a really rigid term, but he says a commitment apparatus. So if you think about sex as something that is uh, meant to, like, it's, it's a glue, basically, that's binding together in every sense of our personhood, emotionally, physically, spiritually, it's meant, it's created to do that. He calls it, really, a, a covenant renewal service, which is really important because the context, as we talked last week, the context, or at some point, I can't remember, that marriage, the sex was created for a covenant relationship. And we talked about how a covenant is not just kind of a my own promise to one another, but it's a legal, binding, social contract that binds you in every way to the good of the other. And so there are Im- implications and ramifications if you break that. And Keller said it, only in the context of that sort of covenant relationship can you freely give yourself to the other. And so it's only within that safe confines that we're meant to actually give ourselves in sex, and sex is then supposed to bind as this unification um, act, this commitment apparatus, he says. Um, 
so that it binds us to one another. This uh, he, he quotes, uh, I'll put this on page 259. <clears throat> if sex is a method that God invented to do whole life entrustment and self-giving, it shouldn't surprise us that sex makes us feel deeply connected to another person, even when it's wrongly used. Unless you deliberately disable it or practice uh, the numbing of yourself to its original impulse, sex makes you feel personally interwoven and joined to another human being, as you're literally physically joined. In the midst of sexual passion, you will want to say extravagant things such as, I'll always love you. Even if you're not legally married, you may find yourself quickly feeling marriage-like ties, feeling that the other person now has obligations to you. But that other person has, in fact, no legal, social, or moral responsibility to even call you back in the morning. This incongruity leads to jealousy and hurt feelings and obsessiveness if two people are having sex but are not married. It makes breaking up vastly harder than it should be. And it leads many people to staying trapped in relationships that are not good because of a feeling of having somehow connected themselves. Do you see, sex connects, it unifies, and that's by design, and it was meant to do that within marriage. So moving on, Keller says, how can we live into this? This is, this is really, really good, and I, I wanted to get this on the recording because it's at least, I, I think, really, really important. He says a number of things. First, that the, spouse, uh, the first thing you have to do to live into the sexual ethic is recognize what sex is intended for and what it's not intended for. <laughs> to look to sex to fill some sort of ultimate desire or even to look to some human relationship to fill an ultimate desire is going to leave you restless, as Augustine said. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Jesus Christ, until we find our rest in God alone. And so by looking to any created thing, especially sex, especially to uh, another person in like in a relationship, you're going to have your soul constantly run dry. And so the first thing that we need to do is to recognize the limits of sex, what it's intended to do, and to actually have the reality, what it was created to, to mirror, which is God's love for us. You have to have the, the love of the gospel, the love of Jesus Christ in our hearts. Secondly... Uh, how we can live into this, what I would say is pretty radical ethic sexually, is to live deeply into Christian community. It says a number of things here, specifically addressed to single people. So uh, if, if folks are single, how can they live into this? Well, live into community with other singles who are neither too hungry to be married nor too fearful of marriage. Oftentimes you'll find one or the other, that people are just craving it at any cost, they just want to be married. Or that they're just too afraid of it that they'll never enter into it. And so he says, no, you've got to find a Christian community that doesn't idolize either of those. Those that don't live according to the world's standards as a basis for partner choices, for a marriage partner. You need to look at, and we talked about this earlier on in the course, the, the way that we approach marriage is radically different as a Christian community based on what marriage actually is. He says this as well, to be in communities that don't idolize the nuclear family. And I think this is one that really affects a lot of churches today. I mean, obviously, the uh, procreation and, and the family unit is, is an essential part of the church. 
But I think many people so cater to that that you can ostracize those who don't fit into that. And the church, Dietrich Bonhoeffer has a great little book called Life Together. And it's about how the church is meant to be this radical community made up of all different people in different stages, seasons of life, backgrounds, um, all sorts of things that are meant to give themselves to the other in, in really radical ways. And, uh, and then also to be in community with those uh, who are... So we'll go back to that. I think it's really important, in my opinion, not just to have... <laughs> Uh, married people in groups and single people in groups, I think often what both groups need are interpollination, cross-pollination. You need one another. And I think the American church in general, and it's not just family, but it's recognizing we need one another's different perspectives within the church to actually sharpen our own life and to get us out of ourselves, so to speak, uh, is really, really important. And we have fought, oh, there's so much to talk about that, but yeah, please. So, I think I told it to Molly a while ago, but the perception that only singles, so like there's a wonderful church in town that the singles group is called, I think, CIC, Content in Christ, as if that concept, concept you know, exclusively applies to single people waiting to buy a house. Yeah. I thought, I, I, like, it's a good thing to aim for, but I, I just, I don't love it. Like, we should all be content. Right. The other thing, when nuclear families are idolized within the church, I, you know, grew up in this reality with a single mother, and like in a Southern Baptist church, oh, that's kind of taboo. Where's the man? Well, I will tell you that there were missed opportunities for men and women and married couples to like serve. Yeah. Uh, for instance, my mother wanted, you know, some wonderful Christian man to just meet my brother at the park to throw a ball. And it was like the women couldn't wrap their minds, the, the married women, wrap their minds around that, yeah. like in the risk yeah. of engaging with a single mother at home. And like, she wasn't going to be there. She's like, just my son for a ball. So that's a metaphor and example. But like, you know, the orphans and the widows, that I think single mothers are within the widow category. Yeah. yeah. Or is being too fearful an idol? I think so. In the way that Keller earlier on in the book was talking about usually the hypercritical assessment of potential married partners, you think about, he said that's really a smokescreen that people have for just, they're afraid of marriage, they're afraid of giving themselves wholly to somebody else because they have such a high standard of what they're looking for. It, remember I quoted the obnoxious excuses people found in, in potential spouses that they wouldn't date them, and it's like Keller's arguing that usually people are, in fact, afraid of marriage because they're afraid of getting burned in it. And um, yeah, so I, th I, th I think it is. That can also be an excuse to just want to play the field. Yeah. But, like, it can also come from fear. Like, there could be something better. Yeah. Like, yeah, FOMO is a huge, yeah. Right. Right. So, um, yeah, another thing that I think is worth talking about is I see this all the time. It's not just singles before marriage. I think also, particularly with those who've been married already and divorced or, um, or widowed or whatever, it's the Christian sexual ethic. I, I've, <laughs> that's perhaps, I think, the most scandalous demographic to try to 
apply the Christian sexual ethic to. Because you're like, well, I've already had sex. It's not that big of a deal. And I'm, I'm not that naive. It's a, I have found in my own life that it's those in their 40s, 50s, 60s, whatever, who you know, are, are now single for whatever reason, trying to live according to the, the biblical sexual ethic is almost far more scandalous to try to apply that than to teenagers or to young adults, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, let me, let me keep going here because I think there's, we got a couple minutes left. But, um, so I think these are all really helpful things. Get the, first, of all, first of all, how do we live into this? Recognize that what our hearts long for most is the love of Jesus Christ. We need God's love in our hearts, not just merely that of another human being, not just sex. Secondly, we need to live deeply in the Christian community. We need to have, in those communities, uh, intergenerational, different seasons of life. We need one another. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about the body and how important every member is. And so help us, help me think about ways that our church can help create this sort of cross-pollination uh, in, our, in our common life together. He says also that we need to be churches that have free and open discussions about the Bible's perspective on sex, which is the very reason we're doing this, and not just doing it one week, we'll do it again next week, which, uh, Lord willing, maybe people, more folks will show up to because they're thinking it's something else. But um, So, yeah, he says, the more often singles and married Christians reflect on biblical teaching the more support singles will feel for actually abiding by it. Most of all, singles who want romantic involvement without mandatory sexual intercourse will need a sufficiently large enough community of single people who are all pursuing the same goals. Imagine trying to, I mean, in a world that feels so overwhelming and so ludicrous, I think is the word Keller uses, to try to actually live that way, you are going to feel like you're being gaslit all the time. You're going to need to be around other people who are actually going after the same goals and that you're not crazy for trying to do that. Another thing he says is to let the gospel penetrate your heart. He recognizes that all of us have sexual sin. Sexual sin is not just in the the behaviors, but it's a matter of the heart. Jesus says that even if you lust after somebody, you're guilty of adultery. And so the question is, do not do we have sexual sin, but to what degree do we? And so as we enter into our own sexual sin, the gospel allows us to avoid two errors. One, to say, oh, it's not that big of a deal, because Jesus came to die for our sin. So our guilt and shame is covered by the gospel of grace. And on the other hand, it helps us avoid self-flagellation and wallowing in our guilt and shame. Um, oh, sorry, that was it. No, to, so self-flagellation and wallowing, but it also doesn't, um, it doesn't let us treat our sin lightly. You get what I'm saying. Those are the two things. Like, it avoids the legalism that says um, you've got to earn your forgiveness, and it avoids the antinomianism which says it's no big deal, just live however you want. That's what the gospel enables us to do antinomianism that means lawlessness so people that's what the roman sorry yeah um anti anti law so that's what the real scandal of the protestant reformation was if you preach that people are really saved by grace through faith people are just going to live however they want but actually the the love of christ changes us to live out of gratitude according to his law so that is an important thing. Let me keep going quickly. So that, that's one of the things that he says. And then finally, if we're going to live according to this sexual ethic, we need to not just have techniques, but actual deep conviction. 
And he, have y'all ever read Jane Eyre? Maybe a long time ago. I, it had been so long. I forgot this. He quotes it. It's amazing. And it's worth quoting uh, parts of this. So in the story, Jane Eyre has fallen in love with a Mr. Rochester who's married to a mentally ill wife who lives in an upstairs room uh, um, of, of his estate. And he uh, urges Jane to nonetheless be his mistress and to move in to his house. And she has this inner dialogue that happens. I just want to read some of it. So she says, um, while he spoke, so he's invited her to live with him. While he spoke, my very conscience and reason turned traitors against me and charged me with crime in resisting him. They spoke almost as loud as feeling, and that clamored wildly. Oh, comply, it said. Think of his misery. Think of his danger. Look at the state when, at his state when left alone. Remember his headlong nature. Consider his recklessness following on despair. Soothe him. Save him. Love him. Tell him you will love him and will be his. Who in the world cares for you or who will be injured by what you do? What a great picture of the, the inner turmoil that when we're tempted to live according to any other standard besides what the gospel and, and God's word says. That's what temptation is all about. It's this inner turmoil of what happens. But look at how she then reasons. She resists this uh, temptation to go and live with him. And she says this. And this is only in the book. It's actually, he says, in every movie that's depicted it, it's always couched as like she's just developing self-esteem, but it's not that at all. Listen to what um, she says. Still indomitable was the reply. I care for myself. The more solitary, the more friendless, the more unsustained I am, the more I will respect myself. I will keep, and that's usually where the movies stop, but she goes on in the book. She says, I will keep the law given by God, sanctioned by man. I will hold to the principles received by me when I was sane and not mad as I am now. Laws and principles are not for the times when there is no temptation. They are for such moments as this, when body and soul rise in mutiny against their rigor. Stringent they are, and violet they shall be. If at my individual convenience I may break them, what will be their worth? They have a worth, so I, will always, so I have always believed. And if I cannot believe it now, it is because I am insane. Quite insane. With my veins running fire, and my heart beating faster than I can count its throbs. Preconceived opinions, foregone determinations are all I have at this hour to stand by. There I plant my foot. And I did. Keller says, she doesn't look into her heart for strength. There's nothing there but clamorous conflict inside of her heart. She ignores what her heart says and looks to what God says. The moral laws of God at the very moments uh, made no sense to her heart and mind at all. They didn't appear reasonable. They didn't appear fair. But she says if she could break them when they appeared inconvenient to her, what would be their worth? If you only obey God's word when it seems reasonable and profitable to you, well, that isn't really obedience at all. Obedience means you cede someone as an authority over you that is there even when you don't agree with him. 
God's law is four times of temptation when body and soul rise in mutiny against their rigor. On God's word, then, not her feelings and passion, she plants her foot. What a beautiful depiction of what we ought to do when our body and mind and soul rise up in madness, both internally and according to the world standards, but to firmly plant our foot on God's good word. And so sex, we will talk next time about. It's 10.15, we're going to have to go, but um, I'll end for there. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the goodness of sex that... uh, as maddening as it may feel inside of us and as crazy as it seems to the world, you are the one who has designed this incredibly good gift, both for our enjoyment, but even more so to reveal the goodness of your son, Jesus Christ. Help us as we look at this, uh, we go forth this week and think on these things and as we come back next week to apply it even deeper. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.